Welcome back to the podcast. We are doing a study on the book of Revelation, and today we're looking at the third letter, the letter to Pergama, aka Pergamum. So in this episode, we're going to read the letter and talk a little bit about the historical context. Then we are going to address who the heck John is talking about in the letter, namely Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Who the heck are they? Finally, we're going to look at the blessings that are promised to believers by Jesus through these letters. So let's dive in. The letter is found in the second chapter of Revelation, verses 12 through 17. First, I'd like to read the message paraphrase. Write this to Pergamum, the angel of the church. The one with the sharp biting sword draws from the sheath of his mouth and out come the sword words, quote, I see where you live, right under the shadow of Satan's throne, but you continue boldly in my name. You never once denied my name, even when the pressure was worst, when they martyred Antipas, my witness who stayed faithful to me on Satan's turf. But why do you indulge that Balaam crowd? Don't you remember that Balaam was an enemy agent seducing Balak? and sabotaging Israel's holy pilgrimage by throwing unholy parties? And why do you put up with the Nicolaitans? Some scholars pronounce it Nicolaitans, depending on who you're listening to. But why do you put up with the Nicolaitans who do the same thing? Enough. Don't give in to them. Jesus says, I'll be with you soon. I'm fed up and about to cut them to pieces with my sword-sharp words. Are your ears awake? Listen. Listen to the wind's words. Listen to the spirit blowing through the churches. I'll give the sacred manna to every conqueror. I'll also give a clear, smooth stone inscribed with your new, your new name, your secret new name. End quote. Now I'd like to read a second translation of this letter. It's the New International Version. So this is the same letter, verses 12 through 17 in the NIV. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Okay, so that's the New International Version of that letter. So Pergamum, also known as Pergamus, also known as Pergama, was a beautiful art-filled city located along two tributaries, two streams, right, of the Caiaphas River. And lots of idol worship, of course, was happening there to like Zeus and other pagan gods. The church there in these letters is commended 
for the way they're holding tight to Jesus while living among evil. The individual named Antipas is thought to have been an actual physician in the city, a doctor who lived in Pergamum, who started spreading Christianity and the medical guild in the city called the Aesculapians reported him for disloyalty to Caesar and he got executed. We see a sword metaphor used in this letter and it's used throughout scripture. The sword metaphor being the word of God is a very common metaphor in scripture. Many scholars say that the image of Jesus with a drawn sword is also implying he's ready to bring righteous judgment. And in this letter, we also see a reference to, quote, the throne of Satan. So now John is talking about the throne of Satan. And unlike the previous letter where he described a synagogue of Satan, this throne of Satan thing is not about any group of Jewish persecutors or any synagogue or anything. It seems like he actually might be talking about a specific spot in the city or the city as a whole. It probably has to do with the pagan stronghold that exists in the city and the heavy persecution that exists there against believers. And by the way, throughout the book of Revelation, Satan is mentioned a lot. And he's often strongly associated with or described as the dragon, which is a link, a hyperlink into the Old Testament to the monster of the sea, the idea of chaos in the Hebrew scriptures. Now, John ties all this into a concept he calls Babylon. Babylon, of course, was an empire that existed during the time of the Hebrew scriptures writings. But John uses the word Babylon to mean whatever evil empire is existing in the day. So at the time of writing, it would have been the cult of Rome, right? It stood in opposition to the rule of Yahweh, the always true God. According to An's commentary on Revelation, if the throne of Satan is probably an exact spot in Pergamum, it's either the Temple of Augustus, the Altar of Zeus, the Roman judge's bench in the proconsul, the Temple of Asclepios, or the city itself, since the city was a major center for the imperial cult, a major spot for persecution, right? And a major hub of idol worship. Pergamum's Christians met in house churches. They were little churches. There were like 35 people in a house. All these letters were written to house churches, small house churches like that. Most of the citizens in their city worshipped the emperor, Domitian, right? It was an imperial cult. They had to worship Domitian. They were like commanded to. There were altars to him everywhere. He had a priesthood. He had temples. It was out of control. And Pergamum was like the first city in Asia Minor to be officially labeled a temple warden for Domitian. So it was a hub. The highest hill in the city had this temple to Domitian and right beside it, a temple, of course, dedicated to Zeus. So that's the historical context that we're reading this letter in. Okay, the second thing I would like to talk about is who the heck are the Nicolaitans slash Nicolaitans? Who was Balaam? Who are these people referenced in this letter? So there's an allusion to a story from the Hebrew scriptures about a prophet, a corrupt prophet, a non-Israelite diviner you know, guy who practiced divination named Balaam. Balaam is known for tempting God's people to compromise and to practice demonic rituals. And you can find Balaam in Numbers 22 through like 31 off and on. Several letters have this allusion to Balaam. Several of these Revelation letters link him also with the phrase, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So 
All this to say, it's a way of describing moral compromise. Whether it's this letter's reference to Balaam, there's other letters that reference other Old Testament characters like Jezebel, who was also a famous example of evil and corruption through idolatry. That's what all these characters have in common that John is choosing to reference in the letters. And Nicolaitans, when he throws that in there, it's probably more of a pejorative term than it is a actual people group, because we don't know of any like specific known people groups called Nicolaitans from that time. It's probably more of just like a way of saying people that believe in incorrect teaching, people that are into moral compromise, people that are practicing idolatry or something similar to that. And I want to ask you, have you ever met a follower of Christ who's like super sold out, super into following Jesus, even when times get tough, they're all in, they're on fire, but they also believe things that you find questionable. So while we can admire somebody's dedication, faithfulness, we can also sometimes feel a little concerned with their theology. And part of me wonders if that might be what's going on with the believers here in Pergamum, because they're staying faithful and they get commended for staying faithful to God through hard times. But they're criticized for this kind of compromise slash idolatry concept. And the Lord rebukes them for that and says, you better stop or I'm going to come with judgment on that, you know? So that's my more generous assumption is maybe they just like literally mistakenly believed bad theology, troublesome doctrinal beliefs, right? But we have to recognize too that the phrase Balaam's teaching, it really means religious compromise. It means moral compromise. It means idolatry. Like eating food, sacrificed idols, and potentially participating in those sacrificial rituals that took place doing so, and potentially even sinning sexually in connection to those sacrifice rituals. So I don't know. It could have been worse than just some accidental wrong beliefs in the church. I don't know. Now, Balaam was basically a professional occultist. Okay, he was like a old school Aleister Crowley. He he hung around with the kings and the famous people and the rich people, and he did divination for them, and he did occult practices and rituals with them. This is the kind of person we're talking about. So in Numbers 22, we found out that he's most likely likely an Ammonite. So Balaam was not an Israelite, okay? He was most likely an Ammonite, but he was friends with the Moabites and their king, Balak, which was an enemy of the Israelites at the time. Now, Balak got nervous about the Israelites when they were doing their like nomadic slash conquering tour thing through the land before they entered the promised land because um, they had been winning battles against other nearby nations and people groups. And so Balak commissions this Balaam guy to curse Israel. Now, Balaam ended up not being able to do it. First, he had a dream where he always showed up in his dream and told him not to go with Balak when he summoned him, right? And eventually Balak like kept trying and eventually talked him into it. And then God's like, okay, but you're going to only end up saying what I tell you to. And so on the way to finally go to Balak upon his request, Balaam actually encounters a holy angel, which may have been uh, Old Testament Christophany, or it may just been a holy angel. The king right? Balak brings Balaam to several different demonic high places. This is the spots that he wanted Balaam to try and curse the Israelites. But instead, Balaam blessed the ancient Israelites 
And the last of the demonic high places that Balaam did this was called Peor. This is important. So Balaam didn't consult Yahweh again at Peor. He just went on the last, what had happened, like the last two high places, and he just, you know, blessed Israel again, but he didn't like actually consult with Yahweh that time. And uh, later in Numbers 25, we learned that Israel started, there's some connection to Balaam influencing Israel to start sinning sexually with the Moabite people, right? It says it yoked itself with Baal of Peor. So Baal or Baal was, of course, the god that was like supposedly receiving all these sacrifices that were made on that Peor high place. And now Israel gets sucked into that practice after all this weirdness happens with Balaam. So a plague breaks out, a bunch of horrible stuff happens in the Israelite camp, and then Balaam ends up dying in a battle between Israel and Moab. That's the end of Balaam's story. The Enduring Word commentary online on Numbers 31 says, Balaam, who had suggested the strategies to seduce Israel into sexual immorality and idolatry, and who did it all for money, was now dead. So what scholars glean out of Numbers 22 through 31 is that Balaam ends up just being a commissioned, disloyal, disrespectful, multi-God-worshipping, you know, polytheist that just uses his spiritual gifts to do whatever he's getting paid to do. And that's why he's condemned. It says, this was the era of Balaam for prophet mentioned in Jude 1, 11. Balaam was in error to do evil against God and his people for the sake of money, even that he would have been willing to do that, or even if he ended up doing that by counseling the Midianites to create this strategy where they sucked Israel into compromise morally and then spiritually. Whatever money he gained was no longer any benefit to him, right? This error cost him his life. The Enduring Word commentary also says, Balaam's name amid the recital of names of the Midianite kings Moab and Midianite, Moab and Midian are basically right beside each other and friends. Okay. So Balaam's name amid the recital of the names of the Midianite kings suggests that he was their advisor, their spiritual guru. And then it says always after a shekel, Balaam had a new gig. And in Numbers 23.10, Balaam spoke of the desire. Let me die the death of the righteous and let me, and let my end be like his. But Balaam had no interest in living the life of the righteous. So he died the death of, a wick, of the wicked in the company of those under God's judgment. And that's really how it ended. Okay, so that was the Enduring Word commentary. Now, why have I always been interested in this random character from the Old Testament? It's a fascinating character in history, obviously. And honestly, he reminds me a lot of the creatives and the artists that exist today. You guys know I live in Southern California near Hollywood and... There's so many, I mean, it's a well-known thing that artists are often tortured souls, right? Sometimes people with creative gifts, artists, musicians, etc., are gifted beyond our level of maturity. It's like we're born with this depth that we can't handle. Our anointing's greater than our character is another way to say it often. And I've seen this so many times where or gifted beyond what our maturity level reaches. And, you know, maybe that gift is just somebody's leadership or winning others over or being charismatic or spiritual discernment or music and worship or faith and belief. 
um, we can get into trouble when our anointing runs way ahead of our character or we're broken and using our gifts to try to fill or fix our own brokenness instead of using our gifts to serve others. Like really, if you're given a gift, especially this kind of gift that Balaam had, well, he maybe he was born with it or whatever to discern spirits, hear from the spirit realm or, or see in the spirit realm or whatever exactly it was that he was doing this, whatever power he was tapped into and whatever sort of unauthorized way he was given that gift. He was created like that to actually be able to serve God and, and, and bless God's people. And, and in our day and age, we're given gifts like spiritual discernment or whatever the gift happens to be, creativity, leadership, whatever, to bless the church, to serve others, to glorify God, to, hum- to be humble in how we use our gifts. So I want to sidebar a little bit and tell you guys a story. This is a personal story, okay? So I can relate on a small, small level to Balaam being kind of all over the place with his gifts. Thankfully, I've repented of, of that and I've chosen to, to recognize the true reason I have my spiritual gifts and my creative gifts. But back when I was younger, I would always say, I don't want to be a worship leader. No, I don't even like worship music, really. I worship God, but I just don't like the music. It's not cool. I like writing pop music. I like indie rock. And I never want to be a worship leader. It seemed cheesy to me. It seemed it seemed like where artists go to die. It seemed like just the last thing I wanted to do because A, it wasn't as cool. And I kind of low-key in my early 20s wanted to like be famous. I wanted to be a pop artist or an indie artist or something. And two, I also saw people using it as a backup plan. And I thought that was weird. Like if you can't become a rock star, you'll just work at a church and become a worship leader. It's like, ew, no, that's not why you're supposed to do that. And it just grossed me out because now you've got people who have a weird attitude about it. I don't know. So I was like, no, I'm not a worship leader. I'll never be a worship leader. I used to say that. Well, I got sick and then got better in 2009 and 10. And in 2010, I got asked to sing at a church that their worship leader was gone. And I was like, oh yeah, sure. I'll just come sub, play guitar, learn the songs, meet some cool people. Well, then they asked me to do that several more times. And I didn't even know where this place was the first time I drove there. I was like, where the heck's Chino? I've never heard of it. Eventually... I just felt a connection with that team of musicians. And I don't know, I felt God kind of stirring my heart to be there more, but it was like so far away from where I lived. And I had prayed in January of, I think this was 2012, that over the next year, God, I want to be able to move and I want to be able to quit teaching. And I want to be able to, because I was teaching like lessons at, um, at a place in Monrovia that I wanted to transition out of. Uh, and I went to, what was it? Move, quit teaching, and I forget the other one. Oh my gosh. Hey, it's Dre chiming in as I'm editing this podcast. I remembered the third thing I prayed for that January. It was actually to find a new home church. Okay, back to the show. But it was three things, and those were like my goals or hopes for the year. And then I fall asleep. Oh, no, I know what happens. They end up asking me, do I want to apply for this part-time worship leader position? And of course, my initial response is no, I don't. 
I want to write pop songs and go on tour and be an indie star, right? That's what I wanted. And yet I had become more yielded to whatever God wanted to do because like, you know, when I was sick, I couldn't sing. So now I was like able to sing again and really willing to do whatever the Lord who had healed me wanted me to do. So I fell asleep and had a dream. And in this dream, I was getting dropped off at like an outdoor wedding. I get out and I see this beautiful setting for an outdoor wedding. And I look and this limo is pulling up and this bride gets out. And it's like the coolest bride, a little different than you would expect. She was wearing like a white pantsuit type thing with like instead of a dress. And she was just really low key, really cool. And I appreciated that. <laughs> this wedding was like my my kind of vibe for a wedding. Then the priest takes me by the shoulders and places me right beside her. And now we're in this like awning thing. It's made of stone, like tan stone. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm the maid of honor. I'm like, oh, I'm in awe, you know, because I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm the maid of honor. What the heck? Ah." So then the priest starts the ceremony. And this awning thing that we're standing in had five windowsills. And on the five windowsills, there were five plants. And as the priest starts speaking, he points to the first plant. And when he points to the first plant past me, I look, and the plant grows like fast. It flourishes like instantly. He does the same thing as he's continuing to to talk to commence this wedding. Uh, And he points at the second plant and it just grows and it's green and it's like, whoa, what is happening? He does the same thing to the third and the fourth. Then when he points to the fifth, plant it doesn't grow and I look closer and I'm like bothered by this and I'm like wait a second that one is fake and I'm kind of offended because I'm like wait this wedding's amazing it feels holy I've got this like honor I never expected to be placed so close to the bride And now I'm seeing that who brought this fake plant in here? That's not okay. No one. And he's pointing at it and he's seeing it's fake. And so I wake up and I'm like pissed about the fake plant. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that was the weirdest dream. So I asked the Lord for an interpretation. Okay. Immediately I realized like what everything meant. The bride is the church, the bride of Christ. And there's five plants and I'm pissed because nothing should be fake in the church. Nothing should be without growth. Nothing should be counterfeit. And when God points something out or highlights or um, puts attention into something, it should respond. It should grow. It should flourish. It should have health. And I realized in this moment that the things that were turning me off about the modern day church or the North American evangelical version of such God hated that stuff too. And so I yielded my heart to him and I'm like, okay, if you hate the fake too, and if you're putting me somewhere where I could actually get into this wedding and it's my vibe, my style, then okay. So I told them, yes, I would like to interview. And of course I got the position. I worked there for 10 years, part-time at that church. And it was God that put me there, literally God. And um, I'm so glad that I was able to understand the interpretation of that dream because it made me more obedient. 
So all that to say, I know that was a long rabbit trail. My heart goes out to people who are gifted, people who have grown up seeing in the spirit and no one's ever explained it to them. People who have a depth, an empathy, a highly sensitive nervous system, anything that makes them more open to their surroundings, more able to process more in the world, not just in the seen realm, but often in the unseen realm to discern and sense what's going on. This is a gift from God, but it needs to be stewarded in the way that he instructs. And he actually trusts us to learn that and to yield to him as our exclusive guide. And a lot of artists with big hearts and tons of empathy and tons of creativity and people who are more in touch with the spiritual unseen stuff, they don't yield to the way that God has explained clearly about how to develop that, how to use that, and who to serve with it. And that's where they get into a lot of trouble like Balaam did, because these idolatrous high places that he went to and these rituals that he was so accustomed to doing, they weren't powerless. There is a spirit realm. There are actual entities behind a lot of these idols that the ancient peoples used to serve and worship and sacrifice to. It's not harmless. And uh, it may not be exactly what you think it is when you first get into it at first. So this is your modern day psychics, your modern day tarot readers. They're often trying to serve others, but they're not doing it in the way that God designed. They're not yielding to the highest power. Okay, so that was that tangent. So that's who Balaam was. So it's important to note that John, in the book of Revelation, is choosing this character Balaam to warn the church. The reason he's choosing it is because this is a person who used prophecy for profit. He had divided loyalty, okay? He never chose Yahweh exclusively, even after encountering him multiple times. This guy who ended up destroying many of the people of God did it through compromise, idolatry, greed. And it may be that John sees a similar possibility, a similar scheme of the enemy trying to happen around these churches in Asia Minor in the first century. And of course, this temptation to be like spiritual and important, but not exclusive to the Yahweh, that's the same temptation that is around us every day today. It's the willingness to compromise. That's what he's warning against. And it still lurks around many prophetic, gifted, artistic people today. Jesus is calling us to live differently than the culture around us, aka repent, right? That's what this letter is asking this church to do. Revelation actually has a theme of not compromising. It's a huge theme in the book. Why do we put up with unholy influences, unholy practices in the culture around us? Why do we compromise? Usually it's because we're used to them. These churches are being asked to live so radically different than their surroundings, than how they've grown up, than how their families operate. It's, not, it's often not an overnight change. But what does it look like to live truly uncompromised, like washed in the word, right? Because Hebrews 4, 12 tells us that the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This is the sword that it's talking about in this letter. The word of God just knows more about you than you even know about yourself. It's able to explain to you how to follow Christ uncompromised. That's the power of the word of God. So I think the main call of this letter is live differently than your surroundings. 
be willing to be holy, set apart, ridiculed, persecuted for it. You have to have an uncompromised spirit about you if you're going to follow Christ wholeheartedly. And that brings us to the last topic of this podcast, which is the three blessings, the promises for the believers at the end of this letter. It's a cool way to end. So victorious believers are promised sacred or hidden manna, like the manna from the Ark of the Covenant is the reference, a white stone or a clear looking stone and a new name, right? The stone has a new name on it. So we got manna, stone, name. Michael Heiser, one of my favorite Bible scholars, says that the rewards in verse 17 here can be understood as three metaphors for eternal life. And a deep dive on his thoughts on this can be found by Googling Naked Bible Podcast Transcript and scrolling to Revelation 2. It's worth doing. So this manna, notice in this letter the juxtaposition of food sacrificed to idols, right? And then this holy food, this provision from the Lord, this sacred hidden manna, this mysterious food. And it makes me think of the story of the temptation of Christ when Jesus says, I don't live on like human physical food alone, but on the word of God. And the time Jesus told his disciples that he had secret food that they knew nothing about makes me think of that too. That was in John 4. Manna, of course, throughout scripture is thought of as this food of the angels. It's going to be at the marriage supper of the lamb at the end, where the basically Leviathan chaos spirit is served for dinner. It's basically where chaos is defeated. So the metaphor John's using here means you're going to be at the table. The promise to the uncompromising believer that endures to the end is that you're going to be at this table, eating this holy manna, eating this food at the marriage supper where the fe- where we're going to feast because our enemies are completely defeated. The beast is dead and sin is no more and we get eternal life. It's that holy supper. Beale's new internet. International Greek text commentary on Revelation says that the promise of this hidden manna is a metaphorical portrayal of end time fellowship and identification with Christ, right? Kind of like a communion thing, a Eucharist type idea. And he says, those refusing to participate in pagan feasts will be rewarded with that holy supper. Okay, second promise was a stone, a pebble, a gemstone, a gomlet, an omelet. I mean, some sort of stone. In the Roman Empire, prisoners were actually shown or given stones, and a white stone meant they would live. It was an acquittal. And a black stone meant a death sentence. So some scholars think he's referring to this Roman practice. But other scholars feel like this is more of a reference to the stones that people used to use for entrance. Like they used to use stones for like entry tickets to temple events. And even one of the stones from the high priest's breastplates back in the day, some scholars say. Knowing John, it could be all three, all of the above, because John likes to smash and smush a lot of themes and concepts together, doesn't he? So you've got this manna, you've got this promise of sub suffering with Christ, right? You've got this stone, this entry into life, this acquittal. And then you've got this name. The stone has a name on it and it's mysterious and secretive. So there are varied interpretations, just like everything in Revelation. Is it God's name? Is it the conquering Christian's real name? 
either way, overcomers get this name written on their stone. And it's because we're getting identified with Christ. Christ in Philippians 2 was given the name Yahweh. So maybe we're handed this, maybe we're given the name Yahweh as our entry into eternal life. Or maybe it's like our real identity in him and each one is different. I don't know. Maybe our ticket into the marriage supper of the lamb to eat the angel food is this white stone of acquittal with Yahweh's name on it. That feels very possible to me. But in short, we know that these promises mean we will reign with Christ. We will reign with Christ. So let's start living out of that identity now. Let's live uncompromised. We don't really need to participate in the demonically inspired parts of our culture anymore. We know who we really are. Uh, We know what we're really made for. And we're inextricably linked with our Savior now and forever. So I really love that letter to Pergamum. I've been reading it for like two weeks straight and meditating on it, researching it. I love the promises at the end because it's really true that we aren't promised an easy life. We aren't promised a suffering-free life on this end, right? But we are promised some pretty epic, eternal things like our status being forgiven. Being reunited with our creator, being called Christ's friend, being honored at the table, being part of the family, being in a place where there's no need to cry ever. He wipes grief away. He he wipes sin away. He wipes trauma away. He wipes every illness away. This is where we're going. It literally is. And I know sometimes it's like hard to believe because all we see is the here and now. But that's what faith is. Faith is remaining faithful through hard seasons, faithful when you don't feel God because you're going to stand on his promises. And let me tell you, that's a lot firmer ground to stand on than anything else out there. So I hope you're encouraged by these three letters that we've reviewed so far in the book of Revelation. And of course, next time we'll be on the next letter. Hope you can join us then. God bless. All around, sure as sky and cloud and ground. If you listen different, you'll hear. Art is a summoning, stirring up the lost and found in our visions, our love and our fear. We're vessels, so the heart is deeper. Born forerunners, so the climb is steeper. Many prophecies, and we made the The chance of you is once in a lifetime Floating in this galaxy Listen to me, it's all inside you Waiting to be lit Write it down, read it loud And don't let your fire go out Some try to numb it down Heart be slow and head and clouds No Get in
Chainsaw you is once in a